Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. This week we're going to be talking about carbon offsets. These are a, a sort of mechanism which diverts money from polluters, people who put carbon into the atmosphere in wealthy Western countries to protect the vulnerable ecosystems in the global south. At least that's the idea. The polluters are companies like airlines and luxury goods brands, companies which think that portraying themselves as good citizens is a smart marketing tactic with their wealthy, guilty customers. They send money to poorer parts of the world to encourage people there not to cut down trees so they continue to store carbon from the atmosphere. Then the companies can tell their customers their gas-guzzling roller is carbon neutral. (laughs) Sounds like a good idea to me. (laughs) Sounds like a fantasy to me, but still we carry on. Anyway, that's how it's supposed to work. And in very much the whole modern way, an industry has built itself around this activity, verifying the project actually does what it says, that there are trees to suck up the carbon, and selling the credits to various people, whether companies like Ryanair or financial investors. One of the biggest carbon offset companies is a Swiss venture called South Pole, which has been in the news because of an enormous expose. It's impossible to think of any other way to describe it in the New Yorker. Well, it was certainly not a very friendly piece. I think you can say that. It was also very long. (laughs) Which looked at its biggest project, a vast area of forest in Zimbabwe near the Kariba Dam. Basically, the report suggested that South Pole had sold far more credits than it was entitled to, that the money hadn't necessarily gone to the poor of the surrounding region, and most of the money instead had been funneled to Guernsey to accounts controlled by a Zimbabwean entrepreneur called Simon Wenzel. It all points to some, well, pretty big governance challenges facing the carbon offset industry. And here to talk to us about it is Andrew Garraway of Resilience, a climate consultancy. Welcome, Andrew, and good to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. I suppose we should just start by sort of defining terms about what carbon offsets are supposed to achieve. And can you tell us a bit about how this whole thing got going? So a carbon offset is essentially a certificate that says... For each tonne of of carbon that's been emitted into the atmosphere, either as a result of a process or a product, that's been dealt with and you don't need to concern yourself with it, as you say. This can be broken down into two main groups, carbon removals, actually taking carbon out of the atmosphere, and carbon avoidance, which is the piece that you've touched on in in the, the South Pole story of actually saying, without this carbon credit, carbon would have entered the atmosphere. If we go back to, you know, 1987, a company in the US who have a coal power station looked at actually, well, how do we address the emissions associated with with burning coal? And they came up with the then novel idea of planting a forest around the power plant. Now, coal power, pretty carbon intensive. And they calculated that they'd need around 50 million trees. And this is in a very densely populated area of New England. And so they had to say, well, If we can't do it here, where can we do it? So carbon, it really doesn't matter where you emit it because the environment is global. So sequestering carbon somewhere is as good as sequestering it anywhere. So they looked into Central America and came up with, well, if we plant the trees there, we can do it much more affordably. 
and we can plant the volume of trees that we need to sequester the amount of carbon we're going to emit. Now, this was 40 years ago, so by now, even the long term might have arrived. So what happened? Well, there's been various research published into this specific project that has claimed that the desired effects have not been achieved, uh, is one way of putting it. So the volume of carbon that was hoped to be sequestered um, and captured, essentially, has been overstated. There's issues around the number of trees being planted or that trees planted have ultimately died, thereby releasing carbon back into the atmosphere. And ultimately, the project hasn't achieved its aims. And I think this is what we'll probably come back to quite a few times of claims not necessarily matching up to reality. But despite that, the industry has persevered. Have we got a more recent example where the results or the interim results are slightly less grim? Well, I think if you look at the efforts over the past 35 odd years, is that we've gone from what was a novel project to an attempt to actually take carbon offsets and move it into the mainstream and put some rules and regulations around it. So with the Kyoto Protocol, the idea of the clean development mechanism was created. What and was that? It's essentially, it's offsets, but in a regulated way. It came up with a variety of projects that countries and, and companies can buy to account for their emissions. Now, when this was you know, set up and it actually became operational in 2005, it excluded avoided deforestation projects because of the concern around whether these projects truly delivered on their objectives. You said earlier on there were carbon removal, carbon avoidance or whatever. But a lot of these projects essentially, if as, as you rightly say at the beginning, that the carbon in the atmosphere is a global issue. The simplest way of thinking, is anything being removed? <laughs> Is, is forest cover as a whole in the world expanding or contracting? Because if we continue to pump more carbon into the atmosphere and there are no more trees, then that system overall is not going to remove very much carbon. The carbon of avoidance, as, as you say, is, is a way in effect of, of focusing it in on one particular place in the world and saying something along lines of the world is deforesting because people are running around developing new activities, farming or whatever, it's more valuable to them to chop down these trees and turn it into farmland and grow, I don't know, beef for McDonald's or whatever. And instead, we will put money into these communities as a way of slowing down that process. And I think these, this is where the main focus of this activity has ended up. Is that correct? It's certainly up to, up to now, yeah. it has, yeah. So we are starting to see the emergence of what's known as direct air capture. So that's literally sucking carbon dioxide out okay. of yes, I think that's a slightly That's a slightly different subject, isn't yeah. it? But you made the point that there have been all sorts of rules and uh, not really regulations there, guidelines in, in place. So I would ask the same question again. Is there a single case at scale of one of these actually producing the required result? I would probably counter and say it depends who you ask. So, Well, I'm asking you. Yeah. <laughs> You're allowed to say it's too soon to tell, like uh, yeah. <laughs> the Chinese <laughs> Thank foreign you, minister. <laughs> <laughs> the, I guess we will only ultimately know when these projects have reached the end of the life at which they're being designed for. Which you is will, how long, sorry? Uh, it's typically around 30 years' time. So just to come back to the history, because this is part of an evolving story, you mentioned the, the UN getting involved 
and creating a system which might provide some sort of mechanism which investors and others can have confidence companies can have confidence in but as i understand it originally if you go back to the first thing that power plant in connecticut you described the people who were investing tended to be people who essentially felt they had to in that they had regulatory constraints if you wanted to carry on operating a coal power plant in connecticut you needed to find a way of dealing with the emissions to meet your regulatory requirements But after this UN thing was set up, it kind of changed for several reasons. One is the customers changed. They stopped being people like that power plant and they became people like Gucci who looked at this in a very different way. They thought, we want to show that that we're a caring brand and that we, we care about the planet and all the stuff we're selling, which is probably very carbon intensive in production, we've thought about what to do about that. Is that fair? And why did that process happen if it happened? That's totally fair, but it's it's possibly drawing it too narrow. And I don't think it's purely luxury anymore. It's organisers of conferences, the airlines. Podcasts? But, possibly. <laughs> but, and, but that is, as you say, yeah. in response to certainly a perceived change in consumer behaviour that... Yeah. To continue to have a social license to operate, you need to be addressing your mm. your impact on the environment. But uh, your list of buyers of these tokens, or whatever we could call them, are buying the tokens and say, look, we've got these tokens. It's not up to them to see whether they actually work, because that is somebody else's responsibility further down the line. So they can shrug their shoulders and say, well, we complied, and we're very sorry that... Uh, this forest burnt down or whatever it was, but it really wasn't our problem because we bought essentially a financial instrument. They may look at it and say, we want to sue the people who sold us this assurance that our product was carbon neutral when it turned out in the end it wasn't. Yeah, well, best that of luck be... with that, I'd say. <laughs> well, of course, they've gone out of business long since before that. So this is why your average buyer in the market will actually engage with, with a broker who will sell, you know, credits which have been verified as meeting a certain level of quality. And Mm. this comes down to questions of, you know, the methodologies which these verification agencies use and whether that is robust. Well, maybe that's the point at which we can bring in the South Pole story, because a lot of that, I think, is exactly about the thing that Neil's talking about. Here we have an industry where the outcomes are very long term. Everyone's getting paid on day day one and things are being verified as a result because that's how people get paid. And the question is, are those verification mechanisms sufficiently robust? Now, if you read the New Yorker story, you'd have to ask yourself, what the hell's going on here? Well, maybe we need to sort of explain who's, whose role is what in this particular story, just as a sort of preparatory. Maybe, yeah. maybe can you just take us through very quickly who did what and yeah, how the structure works? So South Pole is essentially a project developer. They had the idea that the best way to protect the environment is is to avoid deforestation. So they partnered with a landowner in Zimbabwe over a vast expanse of forest and said, well, actually, what we'll do is we'll essentially pay you, the local community, in theory, to not chop down these trees not only saving the trees, but also protecting local wildlife as well. 
providing them with jobs and economic diversification. They're essentially a project developer. You know, they don't actually own the forest themselves, but they partner with someone who does and they sell the credits on to other companies. And how do they get paid? So they get paid through selling those credits to companies or individuals even who may want to purchase them. The question of verification comes in because a third party actually looks at the project and says, okay, this meets certain criteria to establish that it will actually achieve what it says on the tin. The verification agencies all have their own methodology about what constitutes a high quality credit. They have their own principles about around what is additional. So that's the concept of without this, the forest would have been chopped down. And that's really difficult to demonstrate. Which is really important in in standing up, as it were, most of these projects. This process is fraught with difficulty, isn't it? Uh, at, at, At every stage, you can see that you are dependent on a third party doing what they say they're going to do over a long period of time, often in an unstable political environment, like Zimbabwe. The idea that somehow what you promise today will still be adhered to by a rather brutal and corrupt administration is a pretty serious assumption. And that's not one that I would make, certainly. I think that's right. It's a big judgment call, as Neil says. But the question I want to focus on is the money trail. Who pays for who in all of this? So who is actually buying or paying for these judgments to be made? And to what extent can end investors, setting aside all the questions Neil says about political stability in Kariba, because presumably once they get their verification, they go, I don't care about that. I've done my due diligence. But who is essentially paying for these validations which unlock if you like hundreds of millions of dollars worth of purchases sure so the verification agencies themselves they're they're essentially paid it's a tiny amount per accreditation but given the scale and the number of credits that they're accrediting it's it's huge volumes and they're paid typically by the project developers i'm I'm afraid it sounds uncomfortably like the rating agencies rating bonds and we all know what happened in 2008 as a result of their panglossian approach to rating the bonds as highly as they could and it really ended in tears so they're marking their own homework in a way yeah i think marking your own homework is the perfect way to describe what has gone on to date and it explains a lot of the controversies that We've seen not only in the New York piece, but The Guardian's done a lot of work in this space as well to examine particular verification agencies and particular projects to demonstrate that they've not actually delivered according to either their own methodologies or what the projects have set out to deliver. Even the the verification agencies, the ones that are widely regarded are the ones now facing a lot of controversy, in particular Vera, which, you know, Vera, Vera, is, Vera is one of these verification agencies, and they're typically seen as one of the largest, and they're one of the most highly regarded. The Guardian have made a lot of allegations based on research projects that have been done about Vera's methodology isn't actually delivering. Now, mm. Vera obviously are disputing this, But I think it's called into question what was perceived to be one of the leaders in the market in this space. So that has made buyers of of carbon offsets increasingly wary. Presumably buyers of certificates don't just cough up and then say, well, we'll wait to hear what happens in 30, 40 years time. Waving their certificate. Waving their certificate. (laughs) Presumably there are periodic audits to check that. 
things are going as planned? And what is the process if I bought a whole load of credits, as people did in Kariba, this project in Zimbabwe, and I discover after 10 years that actually things are wildly off track? What happens then? So I think the average buyer is probably a bit more hands-off than you might expect. So because because so many players are now in this market... I can see why. You want somebody else to blame. I'm yeah. not being too cynical about this because it is quite a... It's a tortuous chain with a lot of very weak links in it. This is the reliance on the verification agencies, which is proving so problematic now. But historically, this is what they've relied on to be that badge of quality. But and are the there even audits? They, they must do periodic audits to say, what the hell's going on here? Often the audits have been undertaken by the developer, by the developer <laughs> or by an agent, a third party paid for by the developer yeah. or, you know, the verification mm. agency has again than the yeah. yeah essentially what what you're saying what, what, when you say hands off is that nobody really is particularly bothered once they've <laughs> shoved their money in they kind of don't really want to know what happens next they just want to have told their customers it's all fine yeah and i think okay. most your average customer probably doesn't <laughs> understand very fair summary isn't it <laughs> your average customer probably doesn't understand in detail what the difference between one type of offset to another is and what a high quality versus a low quality offset means they just hear carbon well, neutral well the handbag or, manufacturers you know <laughs> it's not their speciality yeah yeah Deal was asking you for a good project south pole is obviously or kariba is obviously a bad project there, there were audits which suggested exactly what I just said, that the amount of carbon being sequestered over the period of time was wildly below what they had estimated when they sold the credits. Yet, as far as I can see, they ca carried on selling the credits. That must, in the long run, have an impact on the, the market. And because it's rather like, to go back to the 2008 analogy Neil drew, funnily enough, when people realised that these uh, CDOs they were buying were full of absolute garbage that had been missold mis to them, they stopped buying them. Is this not a fate that awaits this sector too? I don't know whether it awaits it. I mean, if you look at the prices that the sort of global average price of offset has hovered around $5 a tonne for the past few years now. The overall volume of the, the carbon market has increased hugely. So it was, I think it was about $500 million in 2020, up to $2 billion in 2021, and forecasts are as high as $40 billion by 2030. Now, that's all driven by... 40? Up to $40 billion. Blimey. Yeah. So yeah. that's all driven by either perceived changing in uh, consumer behaviour or, or policy, but the credits, the price of the credits themselves hasn't really changed much. And I think even though we're seeing more projects come on stream, the market hasn't reached a, if it were self-regulating, it hasn't reached a point where it's self-regulating in a good way. And we've not yet seen external regulation come in in a way that has actually pushed out the, the poor quality offsets, driving up prices of the remaining. Do you think offsets. it will? Do you think things like South Pole will make people say, we need somebody to mark the homework who is not the person who wrote it? A novel concept, I agree, in financial markets. <laughs> and never a popular one. 
so there <laughs> the have, sellers. <laughs> there have been some really interesting initiatives. So one of the initiatives which has come out of COP26, led by, by Mark Carney, is the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets. And that said, well, if we're actually going to achieve the level of emissions reductions we need, we need to vastly scale carbon markets. And that's pivoted now to sort of a worldview that says, well, actually, the best way to do this is to improve the quality of the credits themselves, and that in itself will drive scale. So this touches on your point around quality and the sort of the regulation. It's driven by the big industry players mm-hmm. who are actually seeing, well, we can't go on like this if we're to retain this sort of social license to operate. Mm. But actually, there's some really interesting research by Trove Research who have shown that I think it's around 95% of the credits available in the market now wouldn't stand up to the core carbon principles that, that Mark Carney and his initiative have, have actually established. Right. So that's a huge amount of the market that, in theory, shouldn't exist. based on best practice, shouldn't exist. And that's <laughs> industry-led as well. It's a sort of junk bond end of the market, and it's yeah. 95% of the yeah. total. Yeah, sort of hit that's, and hope. That's not very encouraging. But is there any prospect of actually somebody coming in and invalidating that 95%? Or are we still in a world where it sort of needs to osmotically kind of happen by people thinking, oh, that's a good idea? In the very short sort of immediate term, we're we're still in that world where there is no top-down regulation of this coming in. There's a lot ongoing around sort of country-to-country transfer of carbon credits. So Article 6 of the Paris Agreement deals with that. This is where countries can sell their own entitlement to carbon credits. Yeah. So, for instance, the UK could essentially purchase the carbon sequestration capacity of a small area of the Amazon Brazil would sell that and you'd adjust your your sort of emissions accordingly. Yes, I'm just as concerned or more concerned about what happens at the at the sharp end here because it does remind me a bit of the the poor people in the rich countries subsidizing the rich people in the poor countries because how much of this actually gets through to the local community rather than being sequestered by the uh, fault politicians and ending up in a Swiss bank account. Yeah, that's a very good challenge. And if this worked the way it's supposed to work, the money should be going to local communities. You know, in a lot of these rainforests, it's the indigenous communities, but it's, it's not. I mean, some is, but not what should be. That's another challenge beyond even just are these projects actually achieving the carbon reductions they claim? That requires a different set of regulation, I think, to the methodological point. I'm not sure that any set of regulations are going to stop some despot helping himself when he's he's the beneficiary of a military coup. These forests, or whatever they are, these assets, are mostly in poor countries, either in South America, in the Amazon, or Africa. And those are the places which are most vulnerable to somebody taking over and essentially helping themselves to whatever is in the treasury. The West doesn't have a particularly good track record in terms of resource extraction from Global South countries. And this is potentially just another form of resource. But I think the sort of the rule-based approach, which COP26 actually achieved a lot on, there is still more to do around actually what qualifies and what doesn't it's a step in the right direction but there is so much more to do but i think that's more country to country the real challenge in the existing market it's it's focused around companies 
voluntary actions on voluntary credits. Neil's scepticism is tremendous. Oh, you noticed. You noticed. I did notice. <laughs> I don't know why I noticed you were a bit sceptical. I suppose the way I look at it, slightly differently to that, all I agree with a lot, it's hard to disagree with the sceptical take on where we are with this. But there is a thing about this, which is essentially you have to ask yourself whether it really is the right way to go about this to take a product like a 12-cylinder Porsche and basically say, we'll continue to sell these 12-cylinder Porsches, but we're going to plant lots of trees in the Amazon so that you, Mr. Rich Person, can enjoy it without feeling any sense of guilt. What it is, it's disguising an underlying reality, which is that probably you need to sell some other product. (laughs) This sort of complicated verification market creation system which as you said is absolutely full of verification problems because we can't know but we broadly know that the forest cover is not expanding so dramatically that it's ever going to stop more of carbon going to the atmosphere is this really not just a complete fool's errand at the end of the day and we should be thinking about these things in different terms rather than investing enormous amount of Mark Carney-style brain power in breathing life into something which looks suspiciously like a dead horse. I definitely think that the focus should be on something else, and that should be on real emissions reductions. Mm. You know, if you're a company, you should be decarbonizing your supply chain, you should be decarbonizing your industrial processes. That's what you have the most control over, particularly your own industrial processes. And if you're relying on the use of offsets to achieve your stated targets, that is inherently risky because we've heard the issues around quality. Who knows if there's going to be sufficient offsets in 2050 for every company to be offsetting X million tons. But crucially, you need to focus on what you can control. And that is your own processes, your own supply chain. Setting aside all these issues of quality, this is really where you should be focusing. And ultimately, you're right, that might lead to different products on the market to what we have now. But I think there's probably too much of a focus on offsets in people's minds of how they're going to achieve things by 2050, by 2030. And we just don't know what that world will look like. Well, my concern is it's just people kidding themselves about what can be achieved and placing their hope in some unknown person somewhere not chopping a tree down in the Amazon. It's a distraction, is, I think. It's a nothing. Well, I, I promise to leave my Maybach in the garage from now on. <laughs> but you mentioned at the beginning carbon capture and storage. I think I'm right in saying that there is not a single commercial carbon capture plant in the entire world which is working. There are several pilot plants. It's, it looks to me, from a thermodynamic point of view, as though you're trying to pull yourself up your own bootstraps. So carbon capture and storage is actually been operating for, for decades now in the oil industry. So I was specifically referring to direct air capture, which is sort of distinct. Carbon capture is in a process, let's say you're burning, you're burning gas, you're actually capturing a source. The carbon removals offsets are being sold. They're essentially direct air capture is a giant fan and it sucks carbon out of the air. It's not attached to an emission source. There are none of those commercially no. operational. No, the the, the, US the, is the like ones where you, you mentioned about the oil companies doing it. Obviously, they are doing it at the site of where they're extracting the gas and oil, which is technically a great deal easier than capturing it certainly out of the air 
or even out of a power station. And it seems to me that that is the area where there seems to be an awful lot of heat, so to speak, with not much light. I think it's because of the stage we're at. So in the latest IPCC report, I think the figure is around 10 gigatons of carbon we're going to need to remove from the air each year to keep to 1.5 degrees. So that's a huge amount. So that shows where we need to get to. The challenge is that direct air capture, it works, but it's just so expensive to do because it's so energy intensive. It seems <laughs> mad to me. Neil is right. You know, oil and gas companies where there's a lot of carbon coming out of a single place, filtering it out of the you know atmosphere is at least a reasonably a sufficient process, but just sticking a fan up in a yeah. field. And they're and, tiny, and they're you're, tiny you're, you'll amounts. Get, you'll you know, get you're tiny, your enormously energy intensive thing is, produced, is removing almost nothing. So the question is, what's the alternative? The reason we have things like carbon capture and direct air capture is because we're not willing to undertake fundamental changes in how we do things. They're predicated on we will continue to burn fossil fuels. If we remove that from the equation, then you wouldn't need to be fixing carbon capture yep. on oil and gas extraction. Or well, oil and this gas is a much burning. bigger subject. And yep, I, think, I think there is no realistic prospect of that, whatever the, the IPA says about oil demand falling from 2030. They've said it about once a decade for about the last 20 years, and it's never happened. And last year, the amount of oil and gas burnt was a record again. So it's all very well saying, oh, well, if we stopped using hydrocarbons, then all these other things would be possible, uh, while we went back to uh, medieval standard of livings. Yeah, yeah. I think... Sorry, it, it, I think... I don't, I, that's yeah. a, you started it. No, no, no. But I, I think politicians love a, a grand project, don't they? Direct air capture, carbon capture. You can demonstrate jobs are coming out of this. You can demonstrate that this is a huge investment. From a political standpoint, it's quite an attractive project. So the US is investing billions the, the uk in carbon capture is investing smaller amounts but but still see it as a you know politically sellable approach to, to decarbonization i i've looked in a little bit the iea produced its report this week and it noted that over the past whatever it is the international energy, energy agency, agency which produces an annual report one of the things it reports on is carbon capture and storage basically it said it's been the same amount, 40 million tonnes or something per annum for years. And despite all the talk about it going up, it's never gone up. I remember a few years ago going to talk to somebody who was producing systems in the UK to do carbon capture and storage. And I said to him, how's it going to work? How do you persuade people who own industrial companies in the UK to invest? And he looked very long-faced and he said, it's extremely difficult because basically what I have to say to them is you've got to take this expensive process, put it into your equipment with all the capital costs, and essentially you will be competing with people who will not be doing this. And therefore, you're never going to get your investment back. In fact, you're probably just going to ruin your business very, very quickly. His argument was the only way you can make any of this stuff happen is if you have a carbon tariff around your economic area, wherever it is, where everyone is doing the same thing. And so until we get anything like that, and clearly that's politically challenging because it puts up the price of a lot of goods in the West, if Europe, for example, were to wall itself off, we are not going to achieve any of this. 
Once again, it comes down to these sort of South Pole type things are all sort of free lunch ideas. It's sort of, you know, this is fine. We can cling on to these ideas without having to pay for the real cost. It's unrealistic. But until you actually grapple with the realism behind these sort of fine sounding phrases, it's going to be very, you know, you're not going to get anywhere. To, Sorry, rant over. No, no, I think to, you're right. I, I mentioned earlier $5 a ton in the voluntary compliance market. Yeah. If you compare that to where things are in the compliance carbon market earlier this year, in Europe, the EU emissions trading scheme hit 100 euros a ton. Yep. The prices are huge, the discrepancy. Mm, yeah. And then they wonder why manufacturing industry is disappearing from Europe to go to China. I think because you, that is what I is think happening. it's disappeared. <laughs> the word you're looking for rather than disappearing. It's largely well, gone. Well, it's gone from the UK and it's, it's going, it's from, going Europe. from Europe. I mean, they now. don't understand what's coming down the track because the... Uh, the Chinese energy costs are so much lower than anything in Europe. Yeah. This is and that's I a think... huge competitive advantage, which no amount of bad engineering from Volkswagen or Mercedes-Benz is going to save them. I think specifically yeah, the, the policy response to that, the, the carbon border adjustment mechanism that's going to be introduced or is in force from this October, actually, is designed to, to arrest that offshoring of industry. Whether it works in practice... It's never been done before, so we can't say one way or the other, but it's a very interesting development. I wouldn't disagree with that. I'm not sure, I'm not sure it's a positive right. development. Okay, it's we're a getting, very interesting. One. We're, getting very, we're getting excessively gloomy now. I mean, I think what we can all agree is that there are a lot of problems with, with, with carbon <laughs> offsets, and it will take quite a, a, a magical kind of regulatory solution to a fix them but even that won't fix the underlying question of whether they really are much use in the the thing which they're sort of designed to help us resolve i think that's fair but i think also businesses are in a catch-22 situation here of they're damned if they use offsets and they're damned if they don't yeah. um, because they have to demonstrate how they're going to decarbonize and they're using offsets to do that because they don't have all the technological answers right now. And that's what consumers, investors, governments are asking of them. But mm, well, 95% of offsets... We probably need the technological tech. answers, I think. <laughs> well, an understanding of thermodynamics would be a good start. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton. And our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.